Amen. You may be seated. While we turn to God's Word again this morning, you can join me in Acts chapter 20. We're going to pick up right where we left off last week. If It's verse 28. Acts 20, verse 28. And this morning we'll read starting in verse 28. We'll continue through verse 38. And uh, while we'll read through the whole passage, the majority of our time this morning is going to be spent only on verse 38, and we're going to take a little bit of a thematic approach uh, to the verse. Um, Just a reminder to you before we go there, though, uh, for those of you who are our members here at FAC, that uh, elder nominations are due uh, next Sunday, and uh, if you wish to nominate somebody here for leadership at FAC, you actually have to talk to the person first. You've got to ask their permission first, and so we want to give you as much time to do that. Uh, but uh, the nominating committee will not accept nominations after next Sunday, and so please uh, do that. Nominating ballots are available at uh, the Hub if you're interested. Um, it's an important process, and the timing is quite fitting as we turn our attention to Acts 20. Uh, verse 28, uh, which, which actually speaks to the structure of the local church uh, as Paul addresses the elders from the city of uh, Ephesus. Uh, if you were not with us last week and you've turned to the passage this morning, it may seem odd that we're going to begin reading today right in the middle of a paragraph, that, that we're kind of um, parachuting right into the middle of a conversation, because that's exactly what we're doing. We're right in the middle of a conversation in the text that we began last week. And to help give you some context, if you weren't with us, the, the Apostle Paul, he is finishing up his third missionary journey And he is on his way to Jerusalem, Uh, but before he goes to Jerusalem, he makes a quick pit stop in the coastal town called Miletus. And while in Miletus, he summons the elders of the Ephesian church to join him so that he can provide some final encouragement, some final departing words. Um, Because at this point, Paul doesn't think he's ever going to see these guys again in his lifetime And he wants one final opportunity to say goodbye. And he wants one final opportunity to impart wisdom and instruction. And last week, we looked at the beginning of that conversation where Paul essentially sets up for them what he charges them to do by recapping his ministry for them. And what he's doing is he's presenting to them a model of faithful endurance in ministry. Right, Despite hostility that he faced, despite difficulty, despite uncertainty, Paul is faithful to run the race that God has called him to run and to, to finish the race uh, uh, on his life from God. Um, with that idea of faithful endurance as the backdrop, we uh, find this week that Paul now turns his attention to the elders, in verse 28, and he charges them with an important responsibility of, of leading their people in faithful endurance in the midst of a broken world, especially in Paul's absence. And so let's read it together. Once again, Acts chapter 20, starting in verse 28. I encourage you to follow along as I read. This is Paul once again speaking to the Ephesian elders. He says, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. 
And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said it is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. Would you pray with me? And Father, it's written in your word uh, that your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. As we take steps into a dark and broken future, would you help us step confidently, knowing the truths of your word will safely guide us through? While we are severely afflicted, would you give us life according to your word? Help us not to stray from your word this morning. By the aid of your spirit, would we fixate our minds on truth and would our hearts be steered towards your will and your ways in this world? For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So imagine uh, with me for a moment that you are traveling through a rural countryside. And as you're walking down the road, you come across a sheepfold. And upon observing the sheepfold, it doesn't take much time for you to realize that this sheepfold is just in total disarray. Like this thing is just a complete uh, hot mess. Because as you look... You see some pretty alarming things. Right over in one corner, you see um, sheep that look so thin that they look like they're about to die, that they're going to die from starvation. They are just skin and bones. And then you pan over to the other side, and uh, on the other side, it's clear that there are sheep that are wounded, and they have broken legs, and, and there's nothing there to suggest that anything, anybody has done anything about it. There are no evidences of bandages or or dressings over the wounds. There has been absolutely no attempt to heal them. And just when you thought things couldn't get worse, um, you look up and you look beyond the the sheepfold, beyond the pen, and outside of the pen, you see that the majority of the sheep aren't even in the pen, but they're out wandering the countryside. They're, they're, They're all about, scattered about, going off on their own way, and no one, no one is out there trying to wrangle them in. No, no one is looking for them. No one is seeking them out. No one seems to even care that they have wandered off. And to make matters worse, out in the further distance, you see predators, wild beasts who are pursuing the lost sheep and devouring them, eating them. You, you look at the chaos of this scene and you say, what in the world? is going on. Who's in charge here? And that is when you see the most tragic of sights. While all of this is happening, you glance over to find that there are shepherds having a feast for themselves. 
And they are enjoying themselves, having a grand old time, enjoying each other's company. And they are enjoying themselves so much, indulging themselves so much, that it's very apparent that they have neglected their job as shepherds, that they have neglected the sheep. That picture that, that I just painted for you, it's the exact picture that a prophet in the Old Testament by the name of Ezekiel actually used. In Ezekiel 34, God instructs Ezekiel to prophesy against the spiritual leaders of the nation of Israel, God's chosen people, because this is, uh, because this is what has happened to God's chosen people. God, God uses this illustration of shepherds and sheep to really call out the spiritual leaders of his people. They have neglected their role, and as a result, God says that his people, like sheep, have scattered all over the face of the earth because no one is looking for them. No one is searching for them. And they are in grave danger as a result. And then we come to a beautiful turning point in the prophecy. In Ezekiel 34, 11, despite the bleak outlook with scattered sheep and no one to seek them out, God in that moment says, I myself will search out the sheep. I myself will seek them out. I will rescue them. I will be their shepherd. And I will do all the things that shepherds are supposed to do. I will feed them and I will care for them and I will draw them back into the sheepfold and I will heal their wounds and I will protect them from the wild beasts. And we know that hindsight is twenty twenty. that the, the fulfillment of this prophecy comes through in the person of Jesus. Jesus calls himself the good shepherd. And he is the one who collects his people, who seeks them out and gathers them together. And he is the one who is committed to their welfare. And, and that is what we, where we ended last week about how God is committed to his people that God is faithful to his people. And he is so committed to his people that he will see them through to eternity. He will guide his people through the dark world filled with ravenous wild beasts. Remember the context of Acts 20 with Paul is a conversation about faithful endurance. The, the, The backdrop is one of perseverance. The the finish line of eternity is what is on the mind here for Paul as he instructs these elders. And one of the ways that God is committed to his people, one of the ways that God sees his people through is giving his people shepherds to, to serve under the chief shepherd of Jesus. Right before Jesus ascended into heaven, he had a a, a final conversation with his disciple, Peter. He he took Peter to the side and, and said, Peter, if you love me, you will feed my sheep. And right then and there, the, the significance of that conversation is that in that moment, Jesus bestowed spiritual authority. Right then and there, Jesus began a pattern of spiritual leadership. And as Paul traveled throughout the world, 
planting churches, he followed this same blueprint. Paul, by the Holy Spirit's permission and appointment, placed men in spiritual leadership roles. We know them in Acts 20 as elders. And Paul is addressing specifically the elders of Ephesus, the church of Ephesus. Now to this day, churches still follow this blueprint. Here at FAC, we have elders in place. But perhaps you've walked through the hallway and you've seen their pictures hung up in the hallway and you've wondered to yourself, who are these guys? Who are these guys? And perhaps you've thought, I don't really quite understand why we've hung their pictures. They're not even that good looking, right? So why would we put them up as decorations? Perhaps you've asked the question, what is an elder? What is their purpose? Who are these men and what function do they serve in the life of FAC? Those are great questions to ask. And thankfully, because we follow the same biblical blueprint, the model of church leadership, what Paul says here in Acts 20 to the elders in Ephesus could just as easily be said to the elders of FAC. And this passage helps us understand the role and how important the role is and how God uses the role to see the church through faithful endurance, through to faithful endurance and perseverance. Now, now before we come to the answer to some of those questions in the text, I think it's important to define the context in which elders serve, that being the church of God. Right? That's the, Paul, the, the phrase that Paul uses at the end of verse 28. What is the church of God that Paul refers to? That word is so commonplace to us that it would do us well to actually remember what it means, what the the church actually is. The, The word, it comes from a Greek word, ekklesia. And ekklesia literally means the gathering of called out ones. This is what the church is. It's a gathering, right? It's the collection of the sheep that God has sought after and retrieved and brought into his fold through Jesus. It's a collection of people. It's a collection of believers. And this collection of people, of believers, belong to God. They are his because it is the church of God. The church is in God's possession. Now, how can this be so, one might ask? But Paul says the church was obtained by God, that a transaction has actually taken place. God purchased the church. God purchased us with the currency of blood. Staggeringly enough, his own blood. It it was through Jesus' death on the cross that God took possession of his people. Hence, one of the reasons why God is so committed to see his people through to eternity, because it was such a high price to have them. The church, the gathering of believers, both universally and locally, is of high value, and it's Jesus' shed blood for us that actually serves as the foundation of the church, why we gather to begin with. With that, we see the purpose of the gathering of believers. Why do we literally come here every single Sunday to to gather? Because if you think about it, there's a lot of different reasons why people gather together. 
right? Do, do we all gather together like how people gather for a sporting event because we all share a common affinity for the same team? Do we all gather here on Sundays like how people gather for a political rally because we all share a common cause? Do we all gather like people gather for a club because we share a common interest? Or perhaps do we gather like uh, together like people gather uh, at a food pantry because we all share a common need? The deceiving thing is that all of those bear some morsel of a truth. There's, there's some morsel of truth to the gathering of believers there, but none of those are the primary reason that we gather. No, we gather primarily because we have a common Savior who purchased us, and our lives are not our own. Jesus' sacrifice is the beginning for the gathering of the local church purely on the basis that we were purchased by Jesus and God has called us together to represent him and his kingdom in a foreign land is enough of a reason to get up and go to church on a Sunday morning every single week. You don't need any other reason than that. In fact, if you do gather and come here for any other reason, eventually that reason will be no good. Because affinities change. And the causes that you care about are going to be different than the causes that I care about and are going to be different than the causes that other people care about. Interests wane over time. And needs can ultimately be filled. But there will never be a day when I, as a believer, am not under the ownership of Jesus Christ. So do not come here because you and I share a common affinity or a common cause or a common interest or a common need. Come here because we are bonded by Christ, by his blood. With that understanding of of the church and even the local church, we, we can actually now turn our attention to the role of the elder. What is an elder and what is the elder called to do in relationship to the church that has been purchased, that has come together for the sake of glorifying Christ and representing Christ in his kingdom? Who who are the elders? Who are these spiritual leaders? Um, In the New Testament, there are typically three words that are most commonly used um, in respect to this specific role in the church. And all three of the terms actually appear here in Acts 20, verse 28. And all of them are used interchangeably in Scripture. They all represent one office, one role in the church. Um, Culturally, unfortunately, many in our day have tried to separate these. But but we really shouldn't if we seek to honor what Scripture says. Uh, Once again, three different words. All of them mean the same thing. They're pointing to one role. The first word, it's already been mentioned. It's the word elder. The the, the term generally implies uh, age or maturity. It it refers to wisdom. It refers to experience. Um, now, Now, this does not suggest that all men in the role of elder must be older, but it does suggest that all of them must have a certain level of spiritual maturity. They should be mature spiritually. 
There are some young men who have been walking with the Lord most of their life and they are far beyond their years in spiritual maturity. And at the same time, there are some older men who are, who are spiritual infants. The, the men that you want as elders are the ones who are not necessarily older by age, although that helps, but they are definitely older in the faith. Elders. Uh, the second word that we see associated with this role is the word overseer. Once again, back in verse 28, Paul exhorts them to pay careful attention, to keep watch over themselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. The picture that we get of an overseer is that of a guardian or a, a protector, somebody who stands guard like a sentry. The term was actually often used uh, for state officials at the time who watched over an institution or watched over a territory. It's, it's a governance function of some sorts. It's an oversight over the, the affairs of the church, watching, protecting, ensuring that all of the church is functioning in a way that glorifies and honors God. That's the second word, overseer. We have elder, we have overseer. And then the third and final word that we see in scripture associated with this role is the word shepherd. Shepherd. Or, or more familiar to us would be the word pastor. When you hear the title pastor, what is it? It's talking about being a shepherd. In verse 28, you may be looking at that depending on your translation saying, I don't see that word anywhere. Um, in verse 28, it's actually not used as a noun or a title. It's actually used in its verb form. When, when Paul tells them to care for the church of God, more literally, Paul says, shepherd, shepherd the church of God, shepherd the ecclesia, the, the gathering of, of people. Now, this idea of shepherd is one of the most common illustrations when it comes to leadership. It probably is the most common illustration used of leadership in the local church. They are shepherds. Above and beyond anything else, above and beyond any responsibility, elders are called to shepherd the flock. They are called to lead. They are called to feed. They are called to care for. And they are called to defend the gathered people of Christ in the same way that shepherds lead and feed and care for and defend their gathered sheep. And so don't think of the board of elders as just um, as a board of directors. They're more than what you may think of a board of directors. They're more than what you may think of as like a board of trustees. They are a group of shepherds. It's who they are. And, it's, and that's tied closely to what they are called to do, how they are to function. And that brings us to the exhortation right here in verse 28. What, does, what is Paul's main exhortation in verse 28? Pay careful attention. Be on guard. Watch. Two things that you need to watch over, guys, he tells the Ephesian elders. First, be on guard over yourselves. Pay careful attention over yourselves. I think it was Robert Murray McShane who said that my personal, my, my people's greatest need is my own personal holiness. The best thing that an elder can do for their people is, is to embrace God themselves. Because how can one lead others spiritually if they can't even lead themselves spiritually? How, how can they be entrusted with the souls of others if their own soul is a shattered mess? How can one lead to spiritual health if they themselves are not spiritually healthy. 
It's, it's the same concept of when you're in an airplane and what do the flight attendants tell you to do, instruct you to do, should the oxygen masks be deployed? What do they say? You need to put them on yourself first before assisting others. Don't help others first in this regard as far as your spiritual health is concerned. Spiritually help yourself. Prepare yourself first. And then, and then you can help others. You can assist others. So that's what Paul says. Pay careful attention to yourselves. And then Paul says, pay careful attention also to the flock. Watch over the flock. Specifically, all of the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseer. That is a very important sentence in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. All the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers because there's two great implications. That last sentence implies two things. First, it's a reminder that the flock, the church, as we've already learned, does not belong to the elders, but they are being entrusted to the elders' care. The church is not theirs. It's merely something that they're looking out for, that they're watching over. And this concept should actually influence how elders do their job. When I was younger, before I was married, um, sometimes family friends would uh, hire me to come house sit for them while they were away uh, on vacation or something. And I often found myself taking care of their house during that week better than I would take care of my own stuff. And the reason being was this, because I knew the day was coming soon that they would return and I would have to give an account for whatever condition their house was in when they came back. Every mark, every hole in the wall, everything that I had broken, I would have to tell them what happened. And if I am careless in my responsibility, it will will show. It will be very evident. In the same way, the church, which is owned by God, as we've already established, has been entrusted to the care of these under shepherds and they will have to give an account to Jesus when he comes back to get his own. They will answer for it. That's Hebrews uh, 13, uh, uh, 17. That's the first implication. Now, the second implication of of the charge to these Ephesian elders is that while they are responsible for the flock, they are only responsible for a portion of the flock. When, When Paul instructs them to watch over all the flock, Just from context, he couldn't possibly be asking the Ephesian elders who are limited uh, to a specific time and geographical location to oversee every single believer in all places from all time. That shouldn't even have to be said. We know that that's not what Paul is talking about when he tells them to oversee all the flock. No, Paul says you are responsible for all the flock, all of the believers in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. This is what we call a qualifier there. That that is who you will give an account for. This assumes that there are believers who are in the flock, in their flock, entrusted to their care, and that there are also believers who exist who are not entrusted to their care, who they are not responsible for. Now, if I as an elder have to give an account 
for a certain group of believers, it raises the critical question, how do I know who I am responsible for and who am I not responsible for? It is a fair question, especially as one who has to give an account. Is simply attending a church enough of an indicator? Well, not really, because do our elders shoulder the spiritual responsibility of someone who attended only once or twice? How long or how often must a person attend before they are considered a part of the fold? What if somebody attends here regularly and never makes themselves known? We have no idea who they are. Are we responsible for them? What if somebody comes and we don't know if they're really here or not? They're here for several weeks and then they're gone for several weeks and then they come back for six months and then they're gone for another six months. This happens all the time. Are we, are we responsible for them? You quickly realize that if there's no formal way to establish this as a local church, then the determination of who we are responsible for or not is quite a moving target. And it's not a very fair target. When I was in high school, I had the chance to take a mission trip to Whitby, England. It's a uh, gorgeous harbor town on the east coast of England, and we would often drive out uh, of the town through the countryside. And as we drove, you, you would see just hundreds, of, if not thousands, of sheep scattered and wandering about the hillsides. And, and I couldn't help but notice um, that all of the sheep had colored dots on the back of their neck, almost probably in between their shoulder blades. And so I asked our guide at one point, what are those marks for? And he said that they were for identification. They were identification. He explains how the flocks were intermingled and the marks on the back of their necks actually determined which shepherd they belonged to. In the same way, under-shepherds of the local church need a clear identification of who belongs to them and who belongs to somebody else. The the biblical implication suggests that elders need a clear-cut, objective way of defining the flock. And that is where formal church membership comes in. that's, That's part of what church membership is. In a, in a solid reason to pursue it because it provides clarity to the elders about who they are responsible for under, under God. Once again, if I am to be held accountable for my oversight of a specific gathering of believers, it's only fair for me to know who that consists of without having to take a guess. With this, we actually see that church eldership doesn't even work. It can't function without some concept of church membership. Or at the very least, it becomes infinitely harder, especially in a church of our own size. The two and two go hand in hand. And so, so let me push a little bit here. If you are a regular attender here at FAC and a believer, um, but not a formal member, let me ask an honest, hard question. What is holding you back from, from taking that step? Like I genuinely want to know and would be more than happy to be gracious and to sit down with you and talk with you and clear up even any um, misunderstanding that's keeping you from becoming a member. I'm not going to make assumptions. I'll let you speak for yourself. But I, I genuinely want to know how we can help you along in that process. That's a real invitation. I'll take you out to coffee sometime. Um, I, I would implore you, I would implore you to take that step if you're not a member. 
And I would go as far to say that there's biblical precedent and even obligation to enter into formal membership of a church if you are a believer. Once again, I want to be gracious because I know many of your hearts. I have relationships with many of you who are not members, and that's okay. Um, And I know that this is not where many of you are at, but sometimes the overall impression that it gives when hypothetically somebody attends a church without entering into membership is that I want the relationship and the perks without the commitment, without the accountability that goes with it. And, and, And this comes as no surprise to me that the notion of church membership across the board these days is an unpopular one because we live in a culture now that is skeptical and afraid of of commitment in all sorts of levels. We we don't want to commit to our marriage. We don't want to commit to our jobs. We don't want to commit to those who are marginalized. We don't want to commit to our babies. We, by and large, are a noncommittal culture with massive trust issues. Which is why it would be very easy to hear all of this and say, well, you know, this sounds way too institutional for me. And frankly, I don't want any part of this. I'm not interested. So it's it's much too institutional and I'm skeptical of that. And if that's you, let me remind you why, by God's design, the institution of the church is in place. One of the reasons why the institution of the church exists is for our protection As believers, this is what Paul writes and tells the Ephesian elders. Pay careful attention to yourselves and all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Why? Because there are fierce wolves on the prowl. Paul says, verse 29 and 30, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Wolves, they're the the chief enemy of the sheep and they are a constant threat and sheep are quite defenseless against them on their own. In the analogy, fierce wolves, it's any cultural influence that draws you away from the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the scary thing is that such wolves, as Paul warned, can look like the sheep. They can even be from within. And so Paul warns the Ephesian elders that there are those who will appear within the ranks that will twist and distort the solid, straight, and true message of Jesus, and they will attempt to draw people away. We are fighting a battle here. This is a war field. And if a sheep does not belong to a sheepfold, it is vulnerable. And if the shepherd falls asleep on the job, the whole pen is in grave danger. In a world of harsh beasts, sheep need shepherds to ensure their survival. That is the charge. In the world that we live in, The believers who are walking on their own are way more vulnerable than the ones that are plugged in and committed to the local church. Now, this is a heavy weight to bear uh, for our elders to watch over the flock. It's a rather intimidating prospect, and it seems like an impossible task because at the end of the day, we're just like, we're sinners, just like the rest of us. We are wrestling with our own pride, just like everybody else. We are wrestling with our own temptation, just like everybody else. 
So how on earth could elders possibly fulfill this role that the Holy Spirit himself has appointed them to? We find the answer in, in a sustaining reminder in verse 32. Paul tells the Ephesian elders, and now I commend, to you, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. To, to commend means to set before, to place down in front of someone. Paul tells them that they have been committed and placed under God's care. They have been given over to God in the word of his grace. And it is the word of grace, his grace, that is able to build up and give us the promised inheritance, endurance to eternity. It it is God and his promised message of grace towards us that will see us through to eternity. Just as the Ephesian elders, we are not left without the provision of God's grace in this call. And we are not left with the provision of God's grace at FAC. And with this, we see that God's grace not only saves us, but sustains us through that day and beyond when our chief shepherd, Jesus Christ, returns. But until that day, which will be a glorious day, We will honor God with the way that he has instructed us to go about our work and our business so that we will glory in that day. Would you pray with me? And Lord, we recognize that this call that you have tasked us with is um, an impossible work, actually, Father. So much of even frustration in ministry is that it's an impossible work and it's an invisible work, Lord, but it's a work nonetheless. And we know that what seems impossible to us and invisible to us is not impossible for you and not invisible to you. Lord, that you hold all things in your hand and we praise you, Father, um, that, that you have given many gifts to the church. To, to see the church through, to see your people through, Father. We praise you that one of the ways that you are committed to us and love us is, is to place godly men in place to lead and to oversee and, and to love, Lord. And I, I lift up our elders here uh, at FAC, Lord. Would you bless them and keep them? Would you protect them from their own sin? Would you give them discernment and wisdom, Lord? And would they lead well? I thank you, Father, for um, uh, the people who call FAC home. Lord, what an honor and privilege it is to walk alongside them uh, this life in such a harsh world, Father. Uh, being present together and gathering is so much encouragement. And for this, we praise your name, Lord, knowing that none of it is possible without what Christ did and committed to on the cross. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.